Here's the, here's the context. So today we're going to talk about lost. Not, not the TV show, but the word and the idea of lost. So here, here's the situation. And um, I've loved this staying with Luke because we're beginning to see Luke kind of has an agenda. What he remembers about what Jesus said and did. Um, there's, there's something that is woven through that that Luke wants us to get. They're not random stories or random incidents. So here's the one from Luke chapter 15. It's, it's the story of three lost things, right? It's the story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So next week, we're going to do more with the lost son part of it. But for today, it's the idea of the lost aspect. So here, here's the story. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And when you read that, don't you wonder what a notorious sinner is? I mean, could, does someone come to mind when I say the word notorious sinner? Well, they used to hang around with Jesus. And what we're told is that this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. So th this is where Luke is interpreting for us, right? So um, he will tell us the setting, and he will say, so Jesus told this story. So this story is not isolated. This is a story that is related to the fact that the religious folks are complaining that he's hanging out with sinners, notorious sinners at that. So here's what Jesus said. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and having strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Why are you hanging out with sinners? Why are you even eating with them? And implied in that um, is, is a religious worldview. It's a religious worldview that is about us and them. So it's this conspiracy of religious people who want to get a hold of Jesus and get him in line. And they are really saying to him, now, let's just get this straight. It's us and them, right? It's us and them. Uh, we are the religious ones. We are the righteous ones. We are the ones that know God, that God has favor with. And they are not. So we're just baffled about an us-them world in which you don't play by the rules. You should not be with them because you're one of us. It's a binary world, a binary religious world that has to do with in and out, us and them. And I dare say that that has been, even since the time of Jesus, 
the essential framework with which Christians have viewed themselves and the world in which they live, us and them. Now, I, I like binary, and there, there's something right about binary. There's something right about um, the whole electronic computer universe that's either zero or one. It's just that simple, you know, on or off, on or off. Um, I think there are many situations in which you're either this or that. You're either, you know, this political stripe or that political stripe. You're either, you know, whatever it is. But I wonder if what Jesus is doing is challenging the binary salvation view of the Pharisees. Because this occasion causes him to tell a story. And the story that he tells is a story that focuses in on one word more than anything else. And the word that he talks about in this story is the word lost. So let me just show you all of the times that he says this is about lost things, about when people lose something that's valuable to them, what they do to go to great lengths to find the thing that was lost, and then to rejoice when they have found that lost thing. Um, and even heaven has a party when one lost person or one lost thing is, is recovered by the person that has lost it. We're going to see more next week as well about the, the value of the thing that is lost um, being really, really critical. So when we say lost people matter incredibly to God, that's from these stories, that God is relentlessly pursuing people that are lost. Jesus said, you know, I didn't show up here to be served. I, I showed up here to seek and to find those that were lost because my Father has sent me to find the lost ones. So back to this religious worldview in which the Pharisees were saying, well, it's, it's, it's us and them, remember. And we hearken back to other stories that Jesus told when the same categories were being defied by his stories. So we go back to the story of the Good Samaritan. And this young lawyer says, what do I have to do to be a religious person? What do I have to do to get to heaven? And Jesus said, well, you tell me, what does it say in the law? He says, well, in the law, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Good. Do it. Yeah, but who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells an astonishing story where the person who couldn't possibly have been viewed as the neighbor of the one that got me beaten up turned out to be the neighbor. A Samaritan who believed the wrong things, who was in the wrong um, religion, who everything about him was offensive to the Jew, that person did the righteous thing, did the right thing. And the poor lawyer is left confused because Jesus is saying, you're right, love God and love your neighbor, but it might not show up the way you think it'll show up. The Pharisees are meeting with Jesus and they're saying, like it's us and them, right? So why do you hang out with them? And I think there are two things that Jesus wants them to get. One is that lost people matter incredibly to God and that you shouldn't be so careful or so sure that you know who it is that's in and who it is that's out. Those categories may be somewhat suspect. So let me come with us today to have a look at this whole notion of it being us and them um, from the perspective of a lost soul. So Jesus uses this word lost and it's, it's a fascinating word. 
um, it actually travels well all the way down through time to today. And Lost, as the song portrays, is a great way to characterize um, the state of our souls today. I think the word lost is a word that kind of calls out to each one of us and probably most of us would say, you know what, yeah, a lot of times I feel like a lost soul. That's a good word. Uh, I, I feel sort of lost. So why talk about loss um, instead of who's right and who's wrong, um, who's religious and who's not religious? I think one of the things that's important for us to figure out today um, is that in the context of us and them, we live in a different world than when that was clear. So when, when we go through various aspects of our lives, our, our human lives, our religious lives, our spiritual lives, things aren't the way they used to be. It's not easy anymore to say it's us and them, right? Because the us and them categories and the us and them definitions have gotten wobbly on us. They've gotten fuzzy on us. So when I think about the world in which we're living, it's not quite clear anymore in matters like morality and ethics that it's us and them. So we talk a lot about millennials, and as I said last week, we want to be careful to say millennials didn't bring this upon us. They simply are the carriers of our age of which we are all part. But things have changed in terms of morality hugely, haven't they? In the last 10 years or 15 years. So in terms of morality, do you live together first or do you get married first? So the old us, them said, when it's us, we always get married first and then we live together sexually. Today, many, many, many who would say they are us and we might say, yes, they are us, would say, no, we lived together first and then we got married. And the binary us, them, what we do and what they do, it's gotten murky, hasn't it? And the really weird thing is it looks like marriages might be stronger amongst those who live together for a while first. Go figure. That doesn't make it right. But it does tell us that the us-them isn't quite as secure as we once thought it was. If we go a little bit farther and we think about ethics, it used to be that we would be pretty definite in saying that living an ethical life is a prerequisite it's a qualification for leadership or a place of, of responsibility. There has come about an incredible swing in the US given the current political situation so that evangelical believers who not very long ago in majority said, if a person is to qualify for public office, that person has to be an ethical, moral person of high standards. That number has tumbled tumbled, so that now white evangelical males are the, least, are the least likely to say that ethical and moral standards are prerequisites for political leadership. That's what has happened. We've, we've just gotten wobbly, right? So we used to think that it's us, them, and in terms of morality, it's clear what's us and what's them. In terms of ethics, it's clear what's us and what's them. It used to be that um, we were pretty clear on the matter of sin 
and guilt. And we sort of traveled along um, the understanding that pretty much everybody knew that they were sinful and that they were guilty and needed something to care for their guilt. Even when I was a boy, my neighbors felt guilty about not going to church. I tell you, there's nobody feels guilty about not going to church right now, us or them, right? So when I talk to people about sin and guilt, they kind of go, what? I, I marry um, all kinds of people. I spend a lot of weekends marrying people, and, and they're all 30 years old, pretty much within a year or two. Um, they are lovely people whose morality is not what it used to be required to be, whose ethics I think are probably still pretty upstanding, um, but, but they are people who um, speak nicely of and to the generation that has gone along um, before them, but they don't feel guilty about anything. There's, there's not, uh, nothing keeps them awake at night worrying over the lives that they've lived and that they feel guilty or shameful about their lives. What they feel, here's where I want to go, is lost. So they don't feel guilty, they feel meaningless, and they feel lost. And I think they're off into the woods with Peter Pan, living lives that are idyllic making lots of money, buying beautiful homes, raising lovely families. They're lovely people. But they don't feel guilty about anything, or at least they don't let on that they do. Hmm. So this whole dichotomy, this whole binary, this whole matter of personal salvation, where we used to have a pretty strong sense that in our society people had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and either received it or rejected it. I have to tell you that the majority of people that you spend time with have not ever heard the gospel and don't know that they've rejected it. Do you get that? They don't know what it is. And population in the world has gone skyrocketing by billions of people since we've been alive who have not rejected Jesus. They've just never heard the gospel. So it's not us, them, those that have heard the gospel and have accepted it, and those who have heard the gospel and have rejected it. It's those who have heard the gospel and accepted it, those who have heard the gospel and rejected it, and then the great majority who have no idea what we're even talking about. So it's a little confusing, isn't it? And we might have Jesus at a banquet, and he's saying, yes, I'm hanging out with these people that you have still in the us, them categories, um, but here's the thing, they're lost. Now, theologically, Jesus has it right, because he says what we need is for sinners to repent. So our problem is still sin. It just shows up differently. It shows up in meaninglessness and lostness as opposed to guilt. We're still sinners, and we still need to be found. But if we're only able to talk in the categories of the binary, us and them, we may miss what God would give to us by way of wisdom. So the word lost is a fantastic word. It's a word that travels well through the centuries, 
and it talks to people about the longings of their lives and of their hearts, and uh, it ought to be something that we're ready to talk about. There's a very interesting aspect of all of this. So um, being lost, we might say, is when I've lost my bearings. Being lost is I've lost my way back home. Um, being lost is I've lost my way to home. Um, and, and probably all of us would say, hmm, okay, that's what being lost is. And you've probably been lost. The, the most tremendous thing we have now are navigation systems in our cars. Because it doesn't matter where north, south, east, or west is. You just do what the voice tells you. Um, and that's not the way it used to be. When I was a boy, we got lost regularly. Because my dad would never ask for directions. We ended up once in the north of England. And the, the road went from being nicely paved to being a rough road. And then to being a road of signs. And the signs, I can still remember them. It said, stop turn back, you're entering British Army territory. What do you think my dad did? Kept going. I'm imagining tanks with gun turrets pointed at us. And I remember saying, Daddy, are we lost? And he said, no. My grandkids lately asked me, are we lost? That was a great offense. Why would they think I'm lost? Well, probably because Annabeth had already asked are, are you lost? Right. So navigation systems, when we believe them and do what we're told, can help enormously. But we, get, we, we know what being lost is, right? We're, it's an awful feeling where you don't have your bearings, um, where the things around you aren't familiar. And we may have lost our way back home for a variety of reasons, not just directions. And for many of us, we've, we've lost our way to home. And I think that's the experience of the generation of which we are part, not just in terms of age. I, I think we're not sure where we've come from, and we're not sure what we're headed to, or how to get either direction. And we just don't have our bearings. Things have changed enormously. Why it's important to dwell on this is that by what Jesus is saying, there are two places you can be lost. You can be lost outside of your faith, but you can also be lost inside. And when Jesus tells us the next story, there's, there's, there's a very obvious character at play in the next story, the story of the prodigal son, and it's the older brother. He's not lost outside of faith. He's lost inside faith. And he doesn't know it. And I think what Jesus would say to us is this. You have to take seriously what I say. Because just because you are an evangelical Christian does not mean that you're not lost. And what troubles me, as I've said to you, is in each of these stories, what he requires is a stretch you know, about the counting the cost and carrying the cross and giving up everything I own? If, if, if there's a third way that's not us, them, but a Jesus way, then I better pay really close attention to that. And we're in a day when we are being helped, um, not because we've asked for it, but we're being helped to understand that an evangelical Christian label 
doesn't mean what it used to. So, so in, the, in the U.S. where we really are at home in our Christian faith, I mean, we're, we're more secular and we're farther along that pathway and everything, but still, the way we have thought, the way we have behaved has been American evangelicalism. And now American evangelicalism is shaking at the foundations. And if what is produced is evangelical Christianity, we, we ought to be ashamed and we ought to abandon it. But if so, what is the other way? What is the Jesus way? And I think God is giving us an opportunity that says it's not enough to have a label. It's not enough to work politics and economics to your advantage. Because you may be sitting at a table thinking it's us and them, and it's not. There's another category, which is the kingdom way, which is the Jesus way, which isn't political favor or political gain or economic gain. It, it isn't Christendom. It's God's kingdom. So we can be lost outside our faith and inside our faith. The reason we ought to be worried about this is the word lost is the Greek word apolumi, which means destroy. Destroyed. Its primary meaning is destroyed. It's a powerful spiritual word, not just a word that means baffled. It means lost, hopelessly lost. And it's not us and them that's the binary concern we ought to have. It's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world that is the binary difference. And we could be consumed with us and them in the old terms that, that basically stops conversations because if all I can do is talk about the fact that you're a sinner and you need a savior and you go, what? I have no idea what that even means. Then, then we have nowhere to keep talking. But if we can talk about being lost and then it's not just you becoming what I am by label and what you have dismissed because it has failed, it is you looking for something else in your lostness that has to do with the kingdom of God. And this apolumi word that means destroyed is saying God is absolutely concerned over those who are lost because they're not just baffled, they are doomed. They are sinners, they are, they are caught in the kingdom of darkness. And our binary concern, the us and them, is not other people and us, is not insiders and outsiders. It is the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Satan is alive and well. And it is working subtly to draw people in. And it will use whatever arsenal it can get at its disposal. It can just as well use Christian ideas and Christian practices as anything else. And so comes Jesus saying, if you want to be my follower, you're going to find out pretty soon that inside your faith, you may be lost and you may need to repent. The word repent means to change your mind. So it's not an us-them binary, binary difference, but it's a kingdom binary difference that we should be concerned with. And the answer is the same answer, repent. So when we talk language, biblical and practical, about being sinners and needing to be forgiven, we said, and so you need to repent. To repent means to change your mind, to change your direction, to stop. 
Exercise faith in Jesus Christ and follow him for forgiveness. Repentance is still what's necessary for people that are lost. Repentance for people that are lost doesn't sound like I'm a sinner and I'm ashamed of my sin. It will come to that. But repentance sounds like I am lost. I don't know where I've come from. I don't know where I'm going. I have no bearings. Everything is changing around me. And I need to be part of something that's not what I am doing because that's just kind of in the woods with Peter Pan and Captain Hook. Um, But it's not in the church as you've shown it to me. It is following Jesus. And I think Jesus is going to call us out of the church into discipleship because the church has become a problem for the kingdom rather than an advantage for the kingdom. That's harsh, and it's not universally true. But we really need to wake up and say, what in the world is going on, and what are we part of? So we can't smugly say, well, Jesus, it's us and them, right? Because Jesus might just sort of wink at us and say, no, not, not quite. It's, um, it's the Lord of darkness who has taken my children captive, and I want to find them because they're lost to my kingdom. And I want you to be with me in finding them. So don't be saying it's all about whether or not you go to sinners' dinner parties. It's about realizing that those dinner parties are where lost people are. And in heaven, if even one of those people repents, there's a party and the angels rejoice. Just like over a lost sheep or a lost coin or a lost son. So why hang out with them? Because they're lost. And so are we. So it's not because they're lost and we're not. It's because they're lost. And in some terms, maybe we have to say, and so are we. So our repentance may have to be, um, we have not done what we ought to have done. And we've done those things which we ought not to have done. Good old church prayer that says, yeah, we call ourselves Christians, but when we look at our lives and when we measure them against Jesus' values and teachings um, that are outlandish in our kind of society, we've done things that we should not have done, and we have left undone those things that we should have done. And there is no truth in us. I don't know if you like this series. I don't. Because it would be really easy to say, no, 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 no. That's a bit extreme. Except you have to say, really, is, it's kind of like, is this all there is? If this is all there is, let's keep on dancing. Let's just keep going into the woods and running away from Captain Hook and Peter Pan and Sylvie's interpretation notwithstanding. Being lost. There is truth. As Peggy said from John 1, there is a Savior. There is a Creator. He is the one that we belong to. And we, if we have strayed away and become lost to him, what a travesty that is. So cut away all of the categories, all of the things that made us us, and say, hmm, only if Jesus said so. 
If not, they may well just have been political or social or economic or whatever. But the kingdom of Jesus stands, and it is not the church. It ought to be the church. But when it's not, then we need to confess that inside the church we're lost, and we need a savior as well. We need to repent, change our mind, change our thinking, and say, honestly, what would Jesus do? Well, if what Jesus would do would cost me something, so be it. If what Jesus would do is going to make me swim against the tide, so be it. Right? Because it looks like if we are with the program, we're not on the right side of God's kingdom. Because it's going a different direction, the program. It's Christendom. It's making sure you have political power to get what you think is ethical and moral uh, even though people who are leading it don't qualify in those terms. It's, it's absurd. There needs to be a statement from some child somewhere that says, the emperor has no clothes. So let's start that over again. All right. All right. I apologize for a downer on a holiday weekend. But I encourage you to go to Jesus because there is something that is wonderfully intriguing about what he says. And I think he's worth finding and following and repenting for. Father, we pray that you can sort through the, the wonderings that we have as we let Jesus' stories confront our, our lives, how we think and how we live. And Father, help us to, to get a hold of this lost idea. May it be something that gets currency for us and traction for us as we talk with the people of our, of our day. May we have the humility to confess our own lostness but at the same time, our sheer confidence that Jesus is the answer to that lostness. And may we try to walk with people side by side, both trying to find Jesus more clearly than either of us had before, no matter whether we were us or them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.